Well, thank you, Pastor Dave, and a warm congratulations to all of you who more recently graduated. Well, hold on to your hats this morning, brothers and sisters, pun intended, and you're going to understand that in just a second. This is more of a Bible study than a sermon, and so stay focused because we are going to do a deep dive into what many refer to as the hardest passage in 1 Corinthians. So would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be reading from verse 2 down to verse 16. Beloved church, hear God's word. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as a woman came from man, even so man also comes through women, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's come to God in prayer. Sovereign and gracious God, we know that your word is living and active. We know that when you speak, your word does not return void, but it goes forth to accomplish your intents and purposes. And so we pray Speak, O Lord, in and through the preaching of your word. Speak light and life into our souls. Feed us and fill us with the truth of your word. Nothing else will satisfy. No one else will do. We look into your most holy word to see the face of Christ, who is the living word. The word become flesh. It is in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. In the age of radical feminism... LGBTQ and the sexual and gender revolution, to simply stand and read a passage like 1 Corinthians 11 is a dangerous thing to do. Honestly, and to be real, some of us already feel a bit uncomfortable. We feel uncomfortable because the world that we live in, because the culture that surrounds us champions the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. Friends, we scarcely know how much the culture has influenced us until we hear things like verse 3, the head of woman is man, or verse 6, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, or verse 10, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. We hear that, 
and it cuts across all of our modern sensibilities. We're rubbed the wrong way, and we think, we think that, well, that can't be right. That's, that's got to be cultural, part of a bygone era of the ancient world. And so we start rationalizing and explaining away as if this couldn't be true, much less applicable today. Now, the traditions, if you look at verse 2, that Paul is referring to right here, these traditions are, as he lists, first, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son. And then secondly, the doctrine of creation. Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them. These doctrines, these teachings, this truth cannot be changed. It cannot be manipulated or discarded. But rather, these, as Paul refers to them, these traditions, these absolute truths are foundational. And they establish the observable order in the creation. Observable order as relates to the roles of men and women in society, in the family, and in the church. These roles are immovable. They are unchangeable because they are, as we read, anchored in the doctrine of God, in the triune nature of God, and in the doctrine of creation, that God created male and female, men and women unchangeable truths that establish unchangeable patterns of order and authority in the world. These are not cultural differences, or these are not generational traditions, but unchangeable truths, unchangeable patterns of order and authority established by God and not by man. And friends, this is exactly why radical feminism and LGBTQ thrive in our culture today. This is why the sexual and gender revolutions thrive. And let me add into the pot there radical chauvinism, because all of these, they're all a denial of God's nature, His triune existence, and also denials of His creation. They are denials of God the Creator and God's creation, His established order among men and women. Beloved, the unbelieving world has both denied God and His created order. And so, here is and that is our outline for this morning and also for next week. Two points, very simple. First, how the person of God, how the person of God establishes the roles of men and women. God the Father's relationship to Christ the Son establishes headship and authority. Look at verse 3 again. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And here's the anchor. The head of Christ is God. So our first point, the person of God establishes the pattern for men and women, their roles and, and how they should relate one to the other. Secondly, the creation. The creation reflects the order of the Creator. The creation itself also establishes the pattern of male headship. 
The roles of men and women are not determined by cultural mores. They are not social constructs. They are not constructs determined by cultural norms reinforced in society at large over time. No. The complementing and distinct roles of men and women in society, in the family, and in the church were determined by the Creator at the creation. And so, to keep it simple, two points this morning. The Creator and the creation. The Creator and the creation. Now, I have to confess my sin to you because we're not going to get through the first point. But I'll be back next week and we'll look into the second point and unpack what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 11, this business of head coverings and order and authority in the church. And so this morning, the Creator. Now, if you haven't noticed, the title of my sermon is What's in your head is more important than what's on your head. What's in your head is more important than what's on your head. And so today's focus is going to be what's in your head, what we believe, in other words. Being clear about what we believe will help us unpack Paul's discussion on head coverings and, as you read, hair, and we're going to look at all of that next week. After all, what we believe should always come before and determine how we live. Now, before we drop into the outline, the first point, I need to set the stage for us. Set the stage so that we are all on the same page. You see, the reason why 1 Corinthians is so critical today, the reason why it is so controversial, more so today perhaps than any other generation, is because the unbelieving world has denied the Creator and His creation. Well, you say, that's been true since the beginning. And yes, yes, you're absolutely right about that. But as that denial of the Creator and the creation continues from generation to generation, depravity continues to evolve, or I should say devolve, spiraling into deeper and deeper irrationality and deeper immorality. Jesus said in Matthew 24, that lawlessness would abound and that the love of many would grow cold. And friends, it grows cold and colder yet still. Paul said that the ungodly suppress the truth in unrighteousness, denying the Creator and His creation, and thus becoming futile in their thinking, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, Romans chapter 1. For this reason, Paul says, God gave them over to their vile passions, exchanging the natural for the unnatural. Friends, track with me. It is one thing, it is one thing to deny the God of Scripture. But it is another thing to deny the existence of God outright. And it is another thing altogether to set yourself up as God, as the center of your own little universe, determining what is true and false, right and wrong. Now, follow the progression here. It's one thing to deny and reject the truth, but it is another thing to make up your own truth. 
And it is another thing altogether to say that there is no absolute truth, to say that truth is relative. It is one thing to be a man and want to be a woman, but it is another thing altogether to mutilate yourself in an attempt to become a woman. And then it is another thing altogether to deny biology and to deny creation only to say that biological sex and gender are not determined by our biology, by biological science, but instead those categories are determined by my psychology, by how I feel. So that feeling female, feeling like a girl, is what makes you a girl. Today, we should be frightened by the fact that the expression quotes, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. We should be frightened by the fact that that makes sense to us. 10 or 20 years ago, that would have been unintelligible. Friends, this makes sense to the modern mind because having deified self and become their own creators, fallen, depraved man can now create and recreate themselves as they see fit, as they choose, as they desire, as they feel. Follow the logic. If gender is not, is not biologically determined as the world teaches, then why transition? Why gender reassignment surgery? If it's not biological, then why try to change your biology? This, friends, is madness. They're not even playing by their own rules. This is depravity and free fall as it spirals into greater and greater irrationality and immorality. And that is why 1 Corinthians 11 is so controversial today. Not because what the Scripture teaches has changed, it never has, and it never will, but because the generations of Adam's fallen race, they continue to spiral into lovelessness and lawlessness, denying and ever denying the Creator and His creation, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness with greater and greater force, driving thus the modern mind into greater irrationality, and immorality. Brothers and sisters, this is why the light of God's truth is so critical. It is not that we just know God's truth, but friends, we must saturate ourselves in God's truth. We must soak in God's truth. And this creator creation, this creator creature distinction is critical for us that it be anchored in our minds and in our hearts because this creator-creature distinction gives us eyes to see this world and this culture as it is in truth so that we understand and see that the expression, the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body is rooted in a denial of the creator and his creation. 
And let me end this long introduction by reminding you that this God-denying world is not, is not, is not the enemy, but the mission field. You understand that, right? This is not the enemy. This is the mission field. Melvin Tinker wrote this, we must oppose the world to save the world. This is not the enemy, but the mission field. Paul himself, in the context of 1 Corinthians, says, if you look back in chapter 10, verse 32, he says, give no offense to anyone. And he says this, he says, please all seek their profit, not your own. Why? Verse 33, he says, that they may be saved. Friends, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into a creator-denying world, into a creation-denying world to save sinners like us. And God demonstrates it, manifests, he exhibits, he displays his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, still denying him and his creation, in that while we were still sinners in that state, Christ died for us. Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in him the world might be saved. He who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, for he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son, John 3, 17 and 18. We must never lose that gospel focus. This is the message that we must deliver, the, the news that we must tell and declare to an unbelieving world, to a world that we all once belonged to, in which we all once walked. And while we were yet sinners, the mercy and, and grace of God offered to us in Jesus Christ, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We must never lose that gospel focus. And as we study the world and the culture and understand the depth of its darkness, we must never forget or lose sight of the light of the world. And we now in him, we are that light. We are that city set on a hill. Missionaries commissioned into this LGBTQ mission field, into a mission field that hates us. Beloved, what a time to be a Christian. These are the best days. These are the best days. C.T. Studd said this, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's who we are. We're the rescue shop. Each one of us and this church. Well, let's get back to our passage. 1 Corinthians 11. The table is set. And I hope that as we expound on these two points, creator and creation, I hope you see just how critical these truths are today into our current cultural climate. Now, if you take a step back from 1 Corinthians 11 and you look at the larger context, Paul is addressing the issue of disorderly worship. Here in chapter 11, the behavior of women in the church. Verse 17, 
he turns his attention to communion and disorderly communion. And then in chapter 12, if you know 1 Corinthians, the misuse of spiritual gifts, which was, and really it was the abuse of spiritual gifts, which was causing all kinds of disorder in the public worship service. So let me simplify and boil down to you the practical issue that Paul is addressing right here in verses 2 to 16. Paul says this, women should look like women and men should look like men. It's that simple. Women should act like women within the context of the church and men should act like men. Women should be, if I can inject some terms into our discussion, they should be feminine and men they should be masculine. Paul says, look at verse 14, that nature itself teaches us that men and women are different and look different. Mind you, they should look different because we are different. Friends, I'm not, I'm not about androgyny, but instead about masculinity and femininity. And the violation of that created distinction was causing all kinds of disorder and confusion in the church at Corinth. Disorderly worship, even to the point, even to the point where the angels, they were looking at, what the what is going on in Corinth? I don't know if you caught that note. We'll get to and unpack that a little bit more next week. That was the issue here in 1 Corinthians 11. And so to reestablish order, Paul takes the Corinthians back to the source of that order, to the Creator Himself. Now, notice what Paul does here. If we're looking at verse 3, he sandwiches the disputed relationship between the undisputed relationships. In other words, the head of woman is man. That's the one that's disputed, right? What he does is he sandwiches that disputed relationship between the head of man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. And so we're trying to get to the meat of the sandwich, to the middle, if you will. And please note that these three relationships are not all equal or parallel. Men and women, in other words, don't relate to one another exactly like God relates to Christ the Son. The point that Paul is simply making in listing out these three relationships is to highlight that there, that there is order, authority, and submission in each of these relationships. Now, I said the S word. Did you hear it? Submission. People don't like that word in our culture today because when they think of submission, today we think of superiority and inferiority. We think of inequality. But friends, that's absolutely not the case with biblical submission. And by submission, order, and authority, I do not mean inferiority or inequality. Example, when a police officer pulls me over, which is more often than I like, when a police officer pulls me over and he or she exercises an authority over me, this requires my willing submission. Why? Because of the established order. That doesn't mean that the officer is somehow superior as an individual to me. No, absolutely not. They are simply playing a role in an ordered society. And they are given that authority 
that role for the benefit of the common good. In other words, for my benefit. So, submission and authority do not necessitate inferiority or inequality. I told you this is going to be a Bible study. I told you to hold on to your hats. We got to keep thinking because we're going deep. We see this in classrooms, teachers and students. We see this on sports teams, coaches and players. Friends, we see this in our families, parents to children. And look at verse 3. Paul says, I want you to know this. He says, this is of vital importance. In order to understand how women should relate to men and men to women, you need to know this, that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. This passage, beloved, is about headship, submission, and authority, which is why it's so controversial and why it's so problematic today, because no one likes those things in our culture. In our culture, authority is negative, and it is usually associated with the abuse of authority, the abuse of power, as if they were one and the same. So let's start with the first relationship, okay? And then we'll jump to the third before addressing the second, the middle relationship. So we'll talk about the bread ends before we get to the meat. And let me say real quick, three statements here. If you hold fast to one, you will keep all three. If you hold fast to one, you will keep all three. If you disregard one, you will lose all three. Now the first relationship, Christ to all men. Now this applies to all men everywhere. Now, sin has made a mess of it, no doubt, but it is true nonetheless. Verse 3, Christ is the head of every man. He has authority over all men. All men must submit to Christ. That means that at work, brothers, or in the world, or in school, wherever God would have you, all men are to model their lives after Christ. In the office, Costco, grocery store, in your community, among your neighbors, in the home, Christ is head. He is head of the home over every household. And therefore, men are to model in the home with their families. They are to imitate and model their behavior after Christ in submission to his headship. This is true in the church as well. Christ is head over all the elders, over deacons and leaders and, and members. People ask me, who's the senior pastor at your church? Because you can't be, because look at you, you don't got any gray. And I say, oh yeah, his, I think you know my senior pastor. His name's Jesus. <laughs> we don't have a senior pastor at my church, and uh, you know Pastor Danny comes, and Pastor Dave comes here, and they, they preach to you from this pulpit. Because Christ is the head of the church, you understand. And we are all in submission to his headship, to his leadership. Now, we might not like that. That might cut across our cultural sensibilities, but it doesn't really matter, does it? What we like or don't like, our, our cultural sensibilities are irrelevant. The issue is not culture, but rather, is this what the Scripture teaches? And let me say, and emphatically say, that headship Submission and authority here, these are based in love. Oh, I need to underline that and underscore it and 
highlighted and italicized. These are based in love. This is not submission based in superiority, but love. This is not submission, headship, authority based in force or the exercise of power, but love. This is not coercive submission, but based in love. And friends, until we get that straight, we'll never understand headship or authority or Christian submission. And we'll always be threatened by it until, until we get this straight. Until we get this straight, we're going to get caught up with what we put on our heads instead of what's going on inside of our heads. And so Paul is saying, our understanding of these truths is more important than the hat we wear. More on that next week. Okay then. First, Paul says, Christ is the head of every man. And then let's look at the third statement. What does he say? Paul says, the head of Christ is God. Now, because our Trinitarian theology is rock solid, because we know our Trinitarian theology, and because we all understand that headship, headship means authority and implies submission, we know, we know that while the Son of God is equal to the Father, He is equal in essence and in being. That said, in God's eternal plan of salvation, the Son of God submitted to the authority and headship of His Father. His submission, the submission of Christ to God, was simply an indication of God's eternal purpose to save, and not that He was inferior or less than, a lesser being or second class. Now, there's a lot of young people at my church, and so I get the opportunity to preach at their weddings. And I often exhort the man to look to Christ, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then I turn to the bride and say, and your example is Jesus as well. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. He submitted to his heavenly father. Both of y'all look to Christ. He was not submitting because he was second class or less than. No, no. In the eternal plan of salvation, Jesus played a role, Christ Messiah, and thus the head of Christ is God. He humbled himself. He was sent. He became obedient to the point of death, and his submission does not mean that he's second class, that he is less than the Father in his being or worth. Absolutely not. That would be heretical. It simply indicates that God had a plan and that that plan required order, submission, and authority to be executed. And mind you, the submission of Christ was not based in superiority, but love. It, it was not based in the exercise of power, but love. It was not coercive. God, God wasn't twisting the arm of his son, but it was from love that he submitted himself to his heavenly father. And so now we come to the center of the sandwich. Having rightly understood the first and the third statement, we come to the second. Therefore, a woman's submission to the loving leadership and headship of men in society, in the family, and in the church... This never and in no way reduces her to second class. 
this submission is not based in superiority or inferiority or some kind of inequality. And so there is no place for chauvinism here, you understand. This is not men first. In fact, that chauvinistic men first mentality is totally unbiblical. It dishonors God and it is a rejection of Christ's headship. I hate chauvinism and so should all of us. Friends, a woman's submission is simply her expression of her belief that there is an order among the sexes that reflects the purposes and person of God. God is sovereign and in control, and He has created and ordered His creation. And what He says goes. In other words, His order, that's my order. There is order in the Trinity, in the person of God among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and order an economy as it relates to the plan of salvation. And this is what theologians refer to as an economic trinity. Creation reflects the Creator. And so believe it or not, brothers and sisters, the way we interact with each other, men and women, is a reflection of God Himself, which is why there was disorder in the church at Corinth. Beloved, if we don't see that our manhood and womanhood are rooted in the person of God, we will start saying things like, oh, masculinity and femininity are just social constructs and a product of personal preferences and culture instead of being rooted in God. No, friends, Scripture teaches interdependence and complementarity. Yes, she was made to help. Do you know why? Brothers, do you know why she was made to help? Because you need help. There's no other way to say it. You see, a principle is taught in her creation. She was made to help. And that word is used to describe the Holy Spirit, and that is glorious. And I won't unpack that. We're going to save it for next week. But let me say this. The fact that God made her thus as a helper, this does not mean that men shouldn't help. Absolutely not. Throughout Scripture, men in their role, in their masculinity, are described as servants. Servants. And I like what many refer to as servant leadership or servant headship. To be Christ-like is to serve and help. Adam was not specifically made to help, but that didn't mean that he shouldn't help, that he shouldn't serve. In the order of creation, as you know, Adam was made before Eve, and God saw that he was alone. Can you imagine God looking down at Adam, walking around in the garden, crazy man talking to himself, and God's like, that's not good. <laughs> I need to do something for that guy. I need to make someone for him. He's walking around the garden talking to rhinos. This isn't good. I need to do something for him. I need to make someone to help him. And so she was made perfectly to compliment him, to help him. Why? Because he needs help. But we're going to talk about the beauty and order of the creation next week. A beauty and an order that reflects the creator himself just as he said, let us 
make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Beloved, we must understand the creator if we're to understand ourselves, our manhood, our womanhood, our masculinity, our femininity. We must not deny our creator, else we will destroy the beauty and complementing differences of the sexes. As a result, we will try to be our own creators, determining who and what we are, thinking that our identity is malleable. Christians, if we don't live with Creator God at the center of our universe, then we will live in a world of our own making, a world that will collapse under the weight of our own false notions of ourselves and who we are, a world of false expectations and misplaced desires that will never be satisfied. Well, we pick up next week. We pick up with the creation. And once the creator and creation distinction is in place, we will be equipped to understand this whole business of head coverings. Join me for prayer. Dear God, there are so many other words out there, ideologies, so many opinions and platitudes, truth claims and ideas. They are all vain and shallow at best. At worst, they are deceptive and dangerous. Guard our hearts, O Lord. We profess that we are prone to wander. We are easily enticed taken in by secular philosophies and ideologies and the traditions of men. Bind our wandering hearts to thee. Increase our love for your word. Make us like the psalmist who loved your law. Make us like the blessed who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but delight in the law of the Lord and meditate upon your word day and night. Holy Spirit, give us a love for your holy word to read it, to meditate upon it, to treasure it and live by its rule, to love your word more than we love Netflix or the beach, or whatever idol we place there. Forgive us when we do not. Forgive us and change us for Christ's sake, for his glory, and for our good. It is in him that we trust, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.